we've talked so far about the reality of the Bible, which is really what is the Bible. We talked last week about the receiving of the Bible, which is how, how we got the Bible. What you hold in your hand, on, either on a tablet, on a phone, or a tangible Bible. How did we get that? And uh, one of the things we talked about last week was the trustworthiness of it. I think it was point number four, near the end of our lesson last week, we talked about the, point three, the trustworthiness of the Bible. And um, I want to go, go ahead and confess something to you. Last week's lesson, I gave you a lot of fill-in-the-blanks. And uh, every time I've done that lesson, I have probably used it in two different segments, so I kind of piled it on you last week. So this, tonight's lesson is going to kind of reemphasize that, that third point we talked about last week, the trustworthiness of the Bible. How reliable is this Bible that you and I look at and we read from? I want you to turn with me over to 2 Peter, the first chapter, and verses 16 through 21 is what I want to go by. We want to read this morning or this evening uh, talking about the reliability of the Bible. How trustworthy is this? Um, I will confess to you that if I didn't think this was a reliable Bible, I wouldn't waste my time on it. But I know for a fact it is reliable. And as we look here tonight at 2 Peter, there in the first chapter, starting in verse number 16, down through the end of the chapter, he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but, we, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty." For he received from God the Father honor and glory when, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He says in verse number 18, and this, this voice which came from heaven we heard. And when we were with him in the holy mount, verse number 19 says, and we've read this I think the last couple of weeks, but I want to reemphasize it to you again tonight. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well, do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn, till the second coming of Christ is what he's saying, and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That moving that you and I think about, I, I know that right now there's a great revival that's going on. I don't know much about it. Dawn was telling me about it. My wife was telling me about this great at Asbury College. Some of you may be familiar with it. I don't know. But when you see God really moving, that is my, my goal in my life with our four sons is for them to really see the movement of God as I have seen in my life. Uh, I think when we were in high school, Joel will remember this, your pastor will remember this, that there was a, a revival that took place, and we started seeing a lot of those students start carrying their Bibles to school. And, and I wasn't a saint by any means, but I, I, was, I was in church every week and, and pretty faithful and, and a, a good guy. But I started seeing these people that were some of the mean, or, or I wouldn't say mean, they were just mischievous and, and uh, hell raisers. And uh, they began to bring their Bibles to school. Do you remember that? And, and I, start, I started saying, what, I hope this is, that, that was me being a skeptical of it. I said, I hope this is real. I hope this movement is real. But I want to tell you something. If God moves, it's real. If it's God and it's not man-made, it's real. And that's what he's talking about, the word of God that we got was by holy men that spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And uh, I, here's what I want us to look at tonight. And if you want to follow along now on your handout, I want you to follow along with me. Please do in your book. But here's what I would tell you. Some of the things that we think about as our introduction is this, God's Word claims inerrancy 
for itself. Well, here's what I want to tell you. When we think about this word inerrancy, do you believe that God's word is inerrant? I said to you a few weeks ago that the, that word that's on the back of your handout there, that theonoustos, is God breathed. So how inerrant is this word of God that we have today? Well, the, what you have to do is when God's word claims inerrancy for itself, here's what I would tell you. There's so many things about what that word means. Well, inerrancy means not erring making no mistake, or it's infallible. When you and I begin to claim that God's Word is, in, it, it, is inerrant for itself, so what we have to do is we think of this, and, and if you just want to define it, and there's some space. I, I love how y'all put these books together. And Joel, I'm, y'all are way above everybody else. But I want you to write some stuff down tonight. I'm going to give you some other stuff I want you to write out to the right that I didn't have room for on your handouts. Okay? Here's what I would tell you if you, if you want to, you can abbreviate it if you would like. But if you think about inerrancy, when you think about it being defined, it's the, the, it's, the inerrancy of Scripture just simply means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that's contrary. And I'm going to go back over this, so don't have to worry about writing it down again. But the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture... In the original manuscripts, does not affirm anything that is contrary to the fact historically, prophetically, scientifically, philosophically, or theologically. Now, that's a lot of stuff. Again, let me repeat that. If you just wanted a definition of what inerrancy means, this is the great debate nowadays. They say, okay, how reliable is the Bible you're reading from? Well, when we think of that word inerrancy, again, Real slow. The definition for inerrancy is this. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to the fact historically, prophetically, scientifically, philosophically, or theologically. Now, if you come up to me afterward, if you didn't get all that down, I'll give that to you again. But, but that's, that's what we think about this word inerrancy. So when we think about that first point on your introduction there, when it's talking about God's word claims inerrancy for itself, um, if you want to write out here, I'll tell you, inerrancy explained is, here's a good, simple way to do it. Inerrancy pertains to the autographs, what we call autographs, or what is called the original manuscripts. Um, Not the copies and not translations. When you get ready to leave tonight, there were some of you that asked me, and I've got, I think I've got about 26 copies of this I'll give you, any of you that want it, uh, of different Bible translations, telling you the date they were done and how they were done, if it was word for word, paraphrased, or, or, uh, how they, how they came about. And I've got some bookmarks I'll tell you about in a minute. I'll give them to you. But when you think about this word of inerrancy, it's simply this. It means that it, it pertains to those autographs or those original manuscripts. So how reliable is the Bible? It's a great question, isn't it? That's what we all, you go to church week in and week out, and you think, that preacher really, I wonder how reliable that is what he's saying if he's quoting Scripture. Well, tonight, I want us to kind of look at that. When you think of this, there's, there's a lot of verses that I would give you that I, I don't want to confuse us about this, but uh, inerrancy does this. It, it does allow for figures of speech, okay? We, we worry about that sometimes. 
It also allows for the use of what we call approximations, and there's Bible verses that I would tell you that are, that are out there. Write this out to your right. It's not on your handout. But inerrancy allows for those things. doesn't mean it's inerrant if somebody uses approximations because we know in the four Gospels there's a little bit of variation there. So when we look at that and we think about this, does inerrancy also, it allows for like loose quotations because we're getting different viewpoints from different people. Um, I don't want to jump ahead, but I will tell you in the lessons five and six, I'm going to talk to you about the recipes for studying the Bible, and I'll, I'll give you just a real brief of it. Write this out to the right. I'm going to give you three A's when you're studying the Bible that I, I think will help you. It helps me. First of all, who's the author? Who's writing it? The book that you're reading. Who's the author? Second thing is, who's the audience? Who's it talking to? So you see the author, the audience, and then what's the application? If I think of those three things, that's what helps me when I'm reading the Bible. So, and I know I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to drag this out for you a little bit, but I want you to understand the inerrancy when we talk about this. Uh, when you think about inerrancy, there's some verses I put on your hand, and I'll just, do, I'll just give you a brief summation of what the verse says. But there in Psalm 12, 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words. They're pure words, genuine. They're pure. He also says there in Psalm 19, 7, The law of the Lord is perfect. It's inerrant. It's perfect. The other verse that I have down there for you in Proverbs 35, it says, Every word of God is pure. Every word of God is pure. If you're worrying to death about, okay, I want to get in the Bible. I'm going, to, I'm going to study the Bible. I've never read the Bible before, but how reliable is it? And I said this, the greatest commentary, and your pastor would back me on this, the greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Because when he says that his word is pure, every word of it is pure. He says also there in John 10, 35, that latter portion of that scripture says, the scripture cannot be broken. It's inerrant. I'll stand and, and, and that, proclaim that as long as I live. I believe in the inerrancy of God's Word. I don't think that there's anything, in, it's infallible, it's inerrant, and His Scripture tells us that. The other verse of Scripture is that Scripture we've looked at over the last several weeks there in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, where it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration. Theonoustos. It's God-breathed. So, by way of introduction, God words claims, God's Word claims inerrancy for itself. All right, so let's look here. Now, I've got you five points down there. I want you to fill out and bear with me as we go along. The first one is this. It's a reliable collection of historical documents. If you'll remember, as we said last week, it is a collection of books. That's the Bible. How we receive the Bible, it's really one book, but it's made up of several books. And when we look at the collection, it's a reliable collection of these historical documents. First of all, under that principle right there, when we think of that, it's a reliable collection of historical books. Notice this. The original manuscripts of the Bible. Well, somebody says, you know, do you have the original manuscripts? I don't. I don't know if your pastor has them. 
I've never seen them. There's a lot of faith that comes into play when we think about the reliability of the Bible, but he gives us a lot of evidence. So through time, we have gotten portions of what we call the original manuscripts. The other thing is this, the reliable collection of these historical documents is the original manuscripts of the Bible. But I want you to think about this. When we think about the organizing of the Bible, you'll remember a little bit of this last week when we talked about how we got the 66 books. We talked about the transmission of the Bible and how that we got the Bible in the form that we have it now. Well, there was a time that we had, there was the organization of the Bible, the organizing of it, how they put it together. It's a book that it contains two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's made up of those 39 books in the Old Testament and the 27 books in the New Testament. We know that it was written on three continents. We went over that last week in last week's lesson. But the organizing of the Bible is a real key when you begin to think about, we got this because the Old Testament was mainly written in Hebrew. We know that the book of, uh, I think it's Daniel, portions of Daniel and Ezra was written in Aramaic. And then the New Testament is really, and I cannot pronounce it, it starts with the K, Kone, how do you pronounce it? Kone, Kone Greek. So that's the New Testament. So the organizing of this Bible that was put together, if you'll remember last week as we began to think about, we talked about the translations and some of the transmissions of of stuff that was going on. And I've got some stuff that I wanted to to give you tonight that, and I'll give you some bookmarks when we leave tonight. If you've got, if you want them, I've got, I think I've got about 40 or 50 of them here. But if you want a bookmark, here's the bookmark that I give out. It's a little bookmark. It's really about the organizing of the Bible. And it really helps me because I break it down into five sections of each, the Old and the New Testament, as they put, put it together. So when you look at the Old Testament there, I love the, five, the first five books is what we call the Pentateuch, Talmud, is that the books of the law. And um, I'm going to bore you to tears on this. My, uh, the few that's here with my family, is, they've heard this a million times, but the first books of the Bible, somebody says, can you remember the books of the Bible? Well, Easy ways, I cheat a little bit, but GE lights never dim, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible. So when you think of that, that's the, the books of the law. When they was organizing the Bible, they also put those books of the Bible together there, those books of history, all the way from Joshua down to the book of Esther. And then we come to that third section of the Old Testament, the books of what we call poetry. And when you think about it, as they were organizing this, the books of Job all the way to the Song of Solomon. That's the books of what we call poetry. And then we come to those what I call the major prophets, those five books from Isaiah down to Daniel. And a favorite section of mine is this, those last 12 books of the Old Testament, those minor prophets, all the way from the book of Hosea to the book of Malachi. So that's how they organized the Bible. The New Testament is very similar. It was organized into five different sections. I believe you can break it down to four if you want to. But I believe what we call those four Gospels from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see there the book of history, the book of Acts, and that about the, the, the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, I like to call it. But then we see those epistles, those letters from Paul that start out with the book of Romans all the way down in that book of Philemon. And then we see those books of those general letters from Hebrews all the way down to the book of Jude. And then that last section that book of prophecy in the New Testament, the book of the Revelation. 
So when you and I think about the organizing of the Bible, there is much that entailed of what took place for the organizing of the Bible. We talked a little bit about that last week when we were talking about the review of it. The overview, again, of the Bible is just like what we just said right there. The, the, we see the collection there, the original manuscripts, the organizing of the Bible, and then the overview of the Bible. What's the overview of the Bible? Simply this, when they were putting the collection of these books together, again, the overview is simply this. It's broken down into two parts, and we covered most of this last week. Those 66 books, the overview of it. There is one thing about the Bible, if I was to tell you the overview of it, I think we covered this uh, last week, uh, it may have been last week, but there's that common theme. You remember the common theme? It's all about God's relationship to mankind. Also, the overview of the, the Bible is this, everything points to Jesus. Somebody says Jesus is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Oh, yes, he is. The central theme of the Bible is this, it's all about redemption through Christ. So we see that. And then here's the other thing, the outline of the Bible. I've already given you that kind of the outline of the Bible of how you break it down and how that you and I begin to look at it. And we see that the breakdown of how the books are put into place and how that you and I would begin to look. And uh, it's broken down. If you, if you do this, I, um, I learned this way. You bear with me a second. I learned maybe a lot different than you folks do. I believe you break it down into small sections. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, God bless you. I know Joel knows everything about the Bible and, and beyond. But if you're one of those people that struggles with learning and you want to learn about the Bible, first of all, it's a reliable book. But one of the ways that you and I, the outline of the Bible, helps me to break it down into small sections. That's why I tell folks this. Two parts, Old, New Testament, Five parts in the old, five parts in the new, okay? That's pretty much the simple way of doing the outline. And if you're a pastor or a teacher, most all of us uses outlines. Because what I do, I learned a long time ago from an old-time preacher who told me a long time ago, he said, here's what you need to do. He said, you need to make this, uh, keep it really basic, and uh, let God give you a so-called outline. That's a skeleton, and then let him put the meat on it. That's exactly how, if you want to study the Bible, the best way to do it. Here's the second point is this. We first of all see that it's a reliable collection of historical um, documents. The second thing is, has the Bible changed over time? Great question. People says this, when, um, when we think about the Bible, we talked last week, and I'm going to try not to rehash the other lessons, but when we think about the Bible and all these years have passed, has the Bible changed? changed over time emphatically can i tell you it has not it has not god never changes now he allows there's different cultures and different things that goes on in our life that allows us i think back a hundred years ago the way they were serving god and gathering at churches um, you used an acoustical guitar didn't you Right? Did you have a plug-in? That's not him. Boy, I always get him confused with that guy. Do you even play a guitar? No. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the guy with the guns. Well, whoever was playing the guitar up here just a minute ago, if you have an acoustical guitar, that they may have had that. But I guarantee you they didn't have these synthesizers or, or any electrical, things like that. But things have changed. I remember going through the period of time when they would say, you know, we're, we love the old school and uh, the old wooden benches and the old wooden pews. Uh, and they did not want, if you had padding in the pews, 
You were evil. Yeah, I know. It's funny to me, too. Air conditioning, things like that. But here's what I would tell you. In Isaiah, the 40th chapter, in the 8th verse, I put it on your hand out. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of, God, of our God shall stand forever. He changes not. The message has stayed the same. The message of the Bible that you and I read from has stayed the same. Obviously, we know that methods change. Thank God they change. And it's, it's for the better most of the time. But the message and God's word has not changed. The third thing I would give you is this, uh, is historians confirm the Bible. Historians confirm the Bible. When you and I think about this, I, I, uh, I, love the, I love when we look back at the historians. We talked about this, I think, last week. Um, when you think about the history and all those things that we've looked back on, historians confirms the Bible. Uh, archaeologists. I think I read this correctly. They have had over 25,000, this is probably a few years ago, so it's probably closer to around 30,000 what they call finds, digs. And through that, it's confirmed the Bible, things that you and I have read about. So historians through time have confirmed what the Bible says. I think God allows us, and I, I, I don't know, how he does it, but I think he allows sometimes things that you and I can see to kind of help our faith a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? Remember the Shroud of Turan? They, I think I'm pronouncing it right. You remember when it first came out uh, years ago? They, they discovered it probably 30 years ago maybe, maybe longer than then. A lot of people says, is it authentic or not or is it? But I think there's bits and pieces that enough of history has been that it confirms the Bible. History confirms the Bible. If you're a history buff, you look back, as we talked a little bit about last week, we talked about the archaeology and all those things, that does it confirm the Bible? It does. Here's what I'd give you on the fourth part. And this one is kind of a tricky thing. Um, are there contradictions in the Bible? Are there contradictions in the Bible? Now, there's some people that would stand up here and argue with me and say, oh, there's all kinds of contradictions in the Bible. I don't think there is. I want to give you a couple of uh, variations of something here, uh, and, and, I, and I brought this with me tonight because I wanted to read something to you. But when we think about how reliable the Bible is, I think of the four writers of the New Testament. Each one of them really wrote their own biography. So in other words, they were giving their side of the story. So if um, when you were in school, you remember how we would have um, a line of students and uh, they would start with one on this end and all the way to the other end and, and it would start by a phrase or something given to this one. And by the time it got down here, it was distorted. Well, here, I want to tell you, there's no contradiction because these four writers, they called the four Gospels, the four first four books of the New Testament. And um, when historians try to determine if the biography is reliable, um, they think of how many other sources report the same details about the person. So when we look at the Gospels, here's how it works. Imagine you were collecting biographies of JFK. 
I, I do like history. I, I wasn't good in school on it, but I, since then I have really liked it. And first, our first trip to Dallas, I stopped by the uh, um, JFK Memorial, whatever, at the Dealey Plaza, and I went all over there studying about the assassination of JFK. Well, if you think about that, you can find all these types of things and uh, many things describing his family, his presidency, handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And almost all of the biographies report similar facts, but when... But what you find out in one biography reporting that he lived 10 years as a priest in South Africa. Now, what if you heard that? The other biography showed he lived in the U.S. his entire life. A sensible historian would go through the accounts that agree with one another and try to verify it, right? Let's look at the four Gospels. Here's what we see when, regarding Jesus. Here's what happens. you got multiple biographies. you got four. And there's similar facts about his life. Where you find the fact reported in these biographies, you look at the passage of where Jesus was born a virgin. We well, only have two accounts. Obviously, the book of Matthew and the book of Luke gives us those accounts. We see Mark and John did not give an account of that, but they are included in what we call the four Gospels. We see that the, when he was born in Bethlehem, again, it was in Matthew and Luke, the only accounts. When he lived in Nazareth, all four of them give account, and they vary a little bit of what was entailed about that, this little boy Jesus. But then we see Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. It's included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not in the book of John. So does the book of John need to be left out? Not at all. There's other verses, and I'm not going to bore you with them, but I would tell you that when we think about contradiction, there's all of these other things that, that seems to people that people want to try to explain and say that's a contradiction. I think you have to look at what the viewpoint is. Again, I go back to my three A's. Look at the author, look at the audience, and look at the application. So, are there contradictions in the Bible? Again, I would say emphatically, No. You look at the viewpoints. So, as we continue with the reliability of the Bible, we look at this thing where we see the fifth point is this evidence corroborates, it corroborates the reliability of the Bible. Now, what do I mean by that? If you go to a court of law, does it verify it? So, when we're going to corroborate the reliability of the Bible, Here's what I would tell you. When we begin to look at this, there's a lot of things that um, you and I need to look at and, and see if it's really reliable. When I said earlier the, the historians confirm what the Bible says about Jesus, there's all kinds of historical documents. But here's what you look at when you go to corroborate something. We said that, there, that scientifically last week, I think I gave you some of the scientific facts of uh, uh, that verifies really what the Bible says, that it's true. When we look at those type of things, does it really corroborate? If you go to a court of law, you're going to have to have some what we call evidence, right? Well, we looked last week, and on your hand, and I want you to write this down, do not use what we call the scientific method. We love science. The Bible really explains science to you and I. I don't, need, uh, I don't need a lot of uh, scientific proof. 
I think we talked last week. I, I think in Romans, the first chapter gives me enough proof to when you go on your mission trips, if you're going to, where is it you all go? Uh, where is it you're going? Nicaragua? Honduras. When you go there and, and you you're, are covering and you're saturating that country with the Word of God and you're worrying about it, whether it's reliable or not, well, the scientific method is you don't have to worry about trying to use it because Romans 1 says they can look into the skies of a night and see that there is a God. It says they are without excuse. So when you and I begin to think, I'm going to prove, I got to prove this scientifically. I think science proves enough about the Bible that it's reliable. We talked last week when we talked about the sphere, the roundness of the, the earth. It was already there. We talked about gravity. The scientific proof is there, but don't use the scientific method. Here's what I would tell you. Use what we would call the evidentiary method. Now, that's a big word. Are you putting it up there? The evidentiary. Yeah, there you go. The evidentiary method. Use that instead because here's what happens. When you begin, the evidence is there. It's plain. Uh, are you going in November to the Holy Land, some of you? When you go to the Holy Land, you're probably going to have a tour guide, right? And you'll have a tour guide that, that, that will take you to places that, that proves the reliability of this Word of God that we have and the existence of a man called Jesus, our Savior, the Messiah. So the evidentiary method is simply this. You've got evidence to prove it. I've had to go to the court uh, on occasion and when you go to court, they, they usually have what they call a witness, a witness, a reliable witness. If you make up a story, they used to, and I think we shared this with you, but they used to have you put your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But a witness is someone that has done what? A witness is what? Someone that has seen it or heard about it. So there's a couple of different types of witnesses that you see. So when you, when you and I begin to think about the evidentiary method, um, we talk about the witness factor. Turn with me over to the book of Luke. There in the book of Luke, there in the first chapter, in the first four verses, it says, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses. There's a word, that, that Greek word, autopty, I believe is the way it's pronounced, but it, it simply means that they were seeing it with their own eyes. I saw it with my own eyes. They're going to use you in a court. Uh, my young son, he's here tonight, and he, he witnessed a man shooting a couple of guys. And um, he was too young at the time, and when Channel 6 come out, I, I didn't want them to use him. I had another neighbor that was about 90-some years old, and he, he didn't care. He, he said, yeah, I'll tell them what I saw. But they wanted an eyewitness, somebody that saw what happened. So when you think about this, these eyewitnesses, and it says, and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write unto them, unto thee, in order, most excellent Theophilus that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. In the King James Version, it says the word certainty, certainty. 
A witness is used in the court of law still to this day. But in the reliability of the Bible, the evidentiary method is by a witness. When you say, how reliable is the Bible? Can I tell you, the Bible tells us there was eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. Look with me over to the book of 1 John. There in 1 John, and in the first three verses of 1 John chapter 1, notice what it says. It says that that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifested unto us. Verse 3 of 1 John 1 says, That which we have seen and heard, Declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. There's phrases that are without that. When you begin to look at that, that passage there in 1 John, what that says simply this, it says, they heard, they seen, it says that they looked upon, and then it also in the King James Version says handled. They handled. We know the story of doubting Thomas. He said, I'm not going to believe unless I can touch. I want to handle him. Well, some of us are that way about God's Word. But I want to tell you the evidentiary method of the reliability of the Scripture is this. The evidence corroborates the reliability of the Bible. So why, and you and I, we want to debate whether it's reliable or not. I love what it says in 1 Corinthians there, talking about the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, in those first uh, eight verses, those eight verses of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, again, talking about the resurrection of Christ. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I have preached unto you, which you have also you have received, and wherein you stand, by, also, by which also you are saved. And if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. The third verse says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Verse 3 and verse 4, if you want to be a preacher, or an evangelist, or, or a teacher, or a soul winner, take 1 Corinthians, that 15th chapter, verses 3 and 4, and you can win the world. Because it just gives the, the gospel in a nutshell, that He was born, that he was buried, that he died and he was buried and he rose again. That's it. That's it. It's that simple. People say, I get this all the time because I live, in, I live in Mayberry, okay? Things are simple to me. I have to keep it really simple. And people say, is it really that simple? Quit beating yourself up and quit putting so much pressure on yourself to win somebody to Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died was buried and rose again. Thank God he's coming back. And here he says in verse number five, and that he was seen of Cephas. He was seen. And then of the 12, after that he was seen of about 500 brethren at once, and of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, 
he was seen of me also as one of born out of due time. When you think of this, Paul saying that, they saw him. They seen him. There was witnesses. The evidentiary method corroborates the reliability of the Bible. So when you and I begin to think about this, we think about, is it really that reliable? I'm giving you a really quick summation of all these other things we could really look at. But when you think about how reliable is the Bible, it's reliable, folks. It's reliable. It's more reliable than any book you've ever read. If you've read Homer's Odyssey and all these other books and fables and all these other books that, that are, are written that have been around for a long time, some of those are not very reliable. But this God's Word is reliable. You can count on it. There's a lot of books and things that I've read. They're not reliable. There's a lot of things that, that people would, would say, how reliable is the Bible? I want to go back for just a second about the translations. Some of you asked me last week, and um, I would tell you there is some translations that I don't think that are reliable. But God's Word has been allowed and transmitted through the years, and there is very, very reliable translations. Do you realize in the English language there are over 400 English translations? The Bible is reliable. There are some translations that are distorted. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, somebody asked me last week, this dear couple here asked me about them. So, well, I don't want to mess your people up here, and I think they need to come to you on this stuff here, but I will tell you, I'll give you two. I'll give you three. First of all, Charles Taz Russell was an absolute nut. And I've studied for the Jehovah's Witness. If you're a Jehovah's Witness or a former Jehovah's Witness or have family members in there, they need to read the history of Charles Taz Russell that founded it. And they started their own New World Translation Bible. It's a distortion. It's not reliable. Joseph Smith founded the Mormon Church. The Book of Mormon is not a reliable book to go by. Now they say, well, now we accept the King James Version of the Bible. Not so. I've I've got friends. In fact, this came up Saturday in our discussion with some of my, uh, mine and Joel's cl uh, old classmates. They were talking about Mormons. And uh, they were talking about the worth ethic. ethic. <laughs> and, and I told them about my daddy. Uh, he was on his deathbed, and this friend of ours was coming over, and he was a Mormon. He would sit and talk to my daddy. And my daddy uh, smoked since he was nine years old. He was a Somebody said, is he a chain smoker? And I said, he never quit. He started and never quit. But this guy, his name was Danny. He was sitting there, and my daddy wanted to visit with my daddy in his little room, and he was at our house, and he's sitting there. My daddy knew a little bit about the Bible, but he said, Danny, you're a Mormon. You read the Book of Mormon, right? He said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, I'm a Mormon. He goes, Danny, you're the sorriest Mormon I've ever seen. He said, you smoke more cigarettes than I do. And he said, you cuss like a sailor and you drank like a fish. He said, you're a terrible Mormon. But those are two of them. Uh, the other one that, uh, that I would share with you is the uh, RSV. I, I, I have a dear pastor friend of mine that uh, shared with me that uh, that, uh, that one is, uh, is one that he, he really struggles with because he thinks that it is uh, not a very accurate translation. Now, there's people that I know of that reads from different translations and and some of the things I'll tell you about, uh, 
I, I, I have preferences. Joel has preferences on translations, but we want to make sure they're good translations, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm going to get sidetracked on it, and I don't want to do that to you. So here's what I want to close with on this. You and I, when you begin to close, as we look at this lesson on the reliability of the Bible, you, me and you, we do not need to defend the reliability of the Bible. You don't have to defend the reliability of the Bible. And when I say that, and, I, and you write out to your notes, you read this whole passage of Scripture, Psalms 22. Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18. Read that. I'm not going to read it because of time, but you read that. We don't need to defend the reliability of the Bible. You need to preach the gospel. You need to preach the Bible. You need to study the Bible and preach the Bible. But I don't, God don't need me to defend the Bible, the reliability of this Bible. I've got a quote on there for you. It's from Charles Spurgeon. We'll finish with that if you want to put it up there. It's this. It's the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. And what I'm saying by that is Charles Spurgeon hit it right the nail on the head because you and I spend more time trying, feeling like we've got to defend the reliability of God's Word. I'll talk to you a little bit more uh, in the coming week, a uh, couple of weeks, about how you need to pick the translation and how that you, but you need to have how studying it is. So we've looked at what the reality of the Bible is, what the Bible is. We've looked at the re- receiving of the Bible, how we've got the Bible, Tonight, we've kind of looked, and I don't feel like I've done it justice. I have a lot more that I'm not going to be able to share with you. But the, the reliability of this Bible, it's reliable. It's factful. It's infallible. It's inerrant. I think next week we're going to look at the relevance, or the next couple of weeks, look at the relevance of the Bible. Um, if you would, I want you to do this with me. Uh, if you want, uh, if you don't care, I don't know we're, I don't see anybody up there. Are we okay on time? Okay, I've got about five minutes here. I want to share with you something. I want you to come up here with me. Again, I want you to stand with me. I want you to come up here. And my heart is heavy uh, for a dear, dear friend of mine. I, uh, I think I mentioned to you last week how Joel is one of those friends of mine that on one hand, when, you're, when it comes time to pass this, leave this world, you feel like you've got really true friends on one hand. Well, I've got one of mine other than Joel, that is, uh, I got really uh, bad news. Uh, he's 68 years old, and it's probably as a dear friend that I have had. I could call him at any time. He lives out of state, uh, but he has a disease, and I can't even, it's, a, it's a, so rare, it's like one in a million people gets it. And uh, he has, uh, he loves the Lord. He's prayed for me and has helped me tremendously. Uh, but it's, um, it's one of those things where, my heart is breaking for him because they give him six months to live. Now, obviously, you know, we don't, we don't know. But his name is Larry Thompson. If you would do me a favor, uh, I'm sharing that with everybody I can that I believe that prayers, but will you do me a favor? His name is Larry Thompson. He's in Winston-Salem uh, Hospital right now. And um, he has went down so fast but he, is, he has been an inspiration to me, uh, and uh, has, has, he will never let me buy a meal. He's, he's helped us tremendously. When I went on my mission trip, he gave me money for it. And uh, 
just a great, great guy and a dear friend of mine, Larry Thompson, if you would. Father, I thank you so much for Church at Sturkey Hills. Father, for the leadership you've given them, for this pastor, this dear friend, I pray that you'll continue to bless this church to be a church of prayer, a house of prayer, Lord, that they would come and bring the request known unto you, knowing that, uh, that you hear and you answer our prayers. Now, Father, tonight we pray for these specifically that we have mentioned. We have mentioned them out um, vocally. Um, there is great need there tonight for these folks. This 19-month-old that has a family that is uh, breaking apart. Father, I'm going to pray for reconciliation. I pray that, um, that somehow people may not see a way, but I pray that you would make a way. Now, Father, for these others, we've mentioned Dale Tewksbury, Robin Hart, uh, for Ava and Levi. There in California, God, put your hand upon them. You know the situation. And Father, we're just praying for that, that your will be done. And Father, for these others, that we've, this little boy, this one-year-old, Hudson, um, with this blood disease, Father God, I pray, God, would you touch him? Would you touch him? Um, we don't have the words to adequately ask. But, Father, we're, we're just asking as best we know how that you would touch him and heal him. Father, for this uh, Logan Little, this friend of Joel's, continue to bless him, meet the need that is there. For Nor Tracy, Father, the relationship. Father, you put us here to have a relationship with one another as well as a relationship with you. And Father, we know those relationships can be broken but we also know that those relationships can be bridged. And it comes with forgiveness. And I pray for that in that case. And Father, tonight I pray for, um, uh, praise you for the Ben Scoggins report of his surgery. Continue to bless him, meet his need that is there. Um, for the White family in that death, Lord, be with them, comfort them. We know that you say in your word, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. For Michael, Mike White, his surgery and all the things going on in his health, I pray your blessings upon him. Meet his need. Do that for which he cannot do for himself. And Father, I pray for my dear friend, Larry Thompson. My heart is broken. Um, you give us friends that are so dear to us. And Lord, we know we're not here forever, but uh, Father, it hurts sometimes when we think that uh, it's coming to an end on this earth. But Father, I pray you would meet his need. You know what he needs, and you know everything about him, and I pray that you'll meet his need for him. I'm praying selfishly for healing. And Father, I pray through method or miracle or medicine, if there's a way and in, in your will, meet that for him. Love you. We thank you for all that you do. We thank you for your word and how reliable it is. Bless these folks that are here tonight, some that maybe didn't, didn't mention a request, but their heart's heavy for whatever reason, Father. Would you meet that need for them? Father, we take it serious when we come to your throne and ask you. You made this way for us to be intercessories for those that can't pray for themselves sometimes or they need extra help. And, Father, I pray you help us to always be faithful to that. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.